This is your final chance to enter the Mumbrella ComsCon Awards, Australia's best PR and communications industry awards. Entries close this Friday, 24th of February. Don't let the opportunity pass you or your business by. There are team, individual and campaign categories to enter. Head to mumbrella.com.au forward slash ComsCon Awards for the criteria and to enter. Network 10 is shaking up its sales division, Host Havis gets a new boss, and Dentsu's Ben Shepherd says agencies need to consider the role they play in funding outlets that bully. All that, plus interviews with HTE's Kieran Davis and the MFA's Sophie Madden. It's a jam-packed Mumbrella cast. I'm Callum Jaspin, and joining me today to chat about all that is our editor, Olivia Crimmel. Hey, Liv. Hello, Cal. And editorial director Damien Francis. Hey, Damo. Jasper Jaspin. How are you, mate? Sorry, oh, I just had to do that because someone's called you that during the week. We can't be letting that get out, all right? Uh, oh, I have to let that out. I've had Casper, I had Carlton last week. I think Carlton. people just need to read my name when they uh, go to send me an email. <laughs> Moving on. So, as I said at the top there, we've got a couple of great interviews to come. Uh, HTE's Kieran Davis after they delivered their full year earnings for 2022 yesterday. You'll hear from Kieran on how the ad market is shaping up, what he thinks of the rumours of a potential merger with Seven West Media, amongst other things. And then we'll hear from MFA's Sophie Madden on some of the similar topics there staffing, talent, and uh, what the tech sector might do to bolster media agencies in Australia. But starting with 10, Liv, you were across this one. National Sales Director Lisa Scolacci is leaving after just a bit more than four years with the company, during which she was responsible for advertising revenue across Network 10, Template, and Paramount+. Plus. As we understand it, there are more changes to come from the sales team at 10 and Paramount. Is that right, Liv? Can you give us the lowdown? Yes, uh, it's all happening at Paramount at the moment and not for the right reasons, unfortunately. Uh, We do understand there will be some news coming out of Paramount about the sales structure going forward following Lisa's departure, as as you alluded to earlier. We don't know where she's going to as yet. It's all been quite sudden. She obviously has quite a lot of industry contacts following her time at 7 and now at 10, but There's a lot happening, I think, behind the scenes at Paramount. They've not had the best financial results in the past 12 months. So I think there's a lot of pressure locally on the management team, which is why we've already seen some departures, uh, including Liz Baldwin and now Lisa. It's coincided as well with two of the senior Paramount executives visiting Sydney at the moment, uh, which coincided with the launch of their new Paramount Plus program, Last King of the Cross, last week. But I can imagine there's a lot of people sitting on edge at the uh, Paramount offices over in Piemont at the moment, given the uh, the visitors plus this latest news regarding Lisa. And you mentioned performance there, just revisiting some data, which was published at the back end of 2022 from KPMG on behalf of the industry body Think TV. The data wasn't particularly great reading for 10. It overall represented a slight fall in revenue for the TV sector in the second half of 2022. And of that, about 40% of TV revenue went to nine, about 39.5 went to seven, 
and this left about 20.5% of the share of Total TV for the half, Total TV being Metropolitan Regional and Online Revenue for 10. Previously, 10 has had around a closer to 25% figure, but I guess the performance in revenue from 7 plus and 9 now, outperforming that of 10 play was a bigger contributor to that. Liv, you you mentioned Lisa being a a well-liked figure within 10. Her joining from 7 a few years ago, back in 2019, came with a little bit of context and controversy there, though, did it not? It did, yeah. She ended up in a bit of a uh, legal dispute with her former employer, Seven. Um, not the best way you want to leave your company <laughs> with a with court proceedings, but it seemed to have all sorted out before she was then able to actually start at 10. So there was a bit of a non-compete issue there. And yet Paramount has had a rough 12 months, as mentioned, like their revenues fallen, their share prices fallen some nearly 20% in the past 12 months. So it is definitely not the uh, the best time for the business. And that, I mean, they recently announced during their financials that they were going to put up the price of Paramount Plus, the subscription going forward in, in order to try and recruit some of the, the losses they've faced on the ad side from their subscription side. I think yeah. one of the important things as well to mention there is... Uh, there is a bit to be said about continuity as well. The good thing for Paramount is the fact that Rob Prosser is still well within the business as the chief sales officer. So there is still some sales continuity there, which is a positive for them because I think everyone in this industry knows that when it comes to, to salespeople, anytime someone walks in or out the door, they come or leave with a huge bag of contacts uh, as well. So with Rod still there, that's uh, that can only be seen as a, as a positive for them. Definitely. And Bev as well. I think Bev has obviously got a very strong reputation in market and and is very um, well respected. So I think, you know, it is, I think someone mentioned to me, it was a bit of a a reset for the sales function. So we'll have to see how that goes. They did obviously redo a bit of a restructure this time last year in regards to Lisa's role and and putting all of the sales in under her. So let's see what happens in the, the next iteration of the sales function there. And look, speaking of sales teams, that gives me the good opportunity to do a nice segue here into our next topic. There would be a few scratching their heads in the sales teams of News Corp and the Daily Mail after yesterday, Dentsu's recently appointed Chief Investment Officer Ben Shepard called for advertisers to consider the role they play in enabling and funding certain sections of the media after coverage of Brittany Higgins in recent days, which he labeled as bullying. This one ended up attracting quite a bit of traction on the site over the past 24 hours with the Mumbrella comments section much busier than it normally is. A severe course of action here if Dentsu were to go ahead, though it doesn't look like they will. As Shepard said to Mumbrella that the post was designed to spark discussion within the marketing industry around advertising being placed alongside content that may not be aligned with advertisers' values or the treatment of others. Demo, is it up to an individual to decide on this or what happens if agencies start approaching certain sections of the media like this? Uh, Look, if Ben wanted to spark discussion, he certainly did, not only on Mumbrella but on the LinkedIn post as well. But look, let's be fair. This is a topic that has been doing the round since I was in Olivia's seat back at Ad News uh, in 2012 or, or something like that where we went around uh, knowing that every month 
if we looked in the right places, we'd probably be able to find a well-known brand's ad up against a website that it really shouldn't be on because that's really hard to police. Now, again, this was 2012. And those stories would be really popular because, you know, you'd screenshot the situation and you'd get a whole heap of feedback. So let's not pretend that it's a new topic. Obviously, it's a hell of a lot more complex than it was uh, in those days. And I think we've seen a lot of brands take different courses of action towards it. So, for example, you know, we saw Dollar Shave Club years ago when um, Matt Knapp, uh, Aussie uh, expat, Matt Knapp, who's back in Australia now, is the, the ECD there and they advertised against Pornhub and that was their actual strategy. I think the difference here, though, is where Ben is calling out bullying through major news websites in uh, in the Daily Mail and uh, News Corp. Now, that is a lot harder to actually pinpoint because those sorts of sites as well will have you know, your standard everyday, very non-controversial news. But also, as we know, they have certain commentators or sometimes they go for a, an angle which can be a bit more controversial. Uh, so I think pulling out bullying is very, very difficult. Not necessarily impossible, but to your point on is it up to individuals, it probably at this stage of technology is something that would have to be looked at at a case by case basis. Mm. And I think, you know, Shep himself even said in his response to Mumbrella that that it was complicated uh, and potentially controversial content. But look, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that there's a simple solution for this. But what I would suggest is a blanket pulling of all advertising would not be a sensible uh, solution. Uh, and it's also should be considered that you know the client has a lot to do with this as well not just the agency because while the agency points to the direction of spend the client approves it or the client gets clued in on it or the client may suggest where they want to be as well so there's a uh, there's a lot more complexity to this one than, than i think uh is on the surface i guess another part of that was that he mentioned that it would be some sort of lever function, I guess, uh, mentioned certain columnists or individuals. One of those in reference was Andrew Bolt, who has been known for a controversial opinion in his time. So yeah, I think uh, that one will probably be left up to the businesses to d- decide on that going forward. Yeah. And again, how many times have we talked about that? Well, Carl Sanderlands has a lot of controversy around him as well, but uh, it blows over relatively quickly, doesn't it? And Andrew Bolt doesn't have uh, you know, arguably half the audience that uh, Kyle Sandlin's has. But look, interestingly as well, Cal, you know, just looking back on Mumbrella as well, we have been covering this topic for years as well. And there's a really interesting quote that I found back uh, back in the day from UM's then global brand uh, safety officer who said, clients prefer cheaper investment, not the cheapest, but there is a lot of pressure on price and there is always a trade-off when you look at it that way. So, you know, it, it's not something that's going to go away anytime soon, I'd suggest. And unfortunately, audiences as well love a bit of salacious and, and that whole tall poppy syndrome as well, right, in Australia. So unfortunately, those articles and those columnists that do, you know, 
go down the bullying and harassment and, and the media across the board is, is guilty of this in terms of, you know, picking out someone. There, there's been a few other examples recently where, for instance, the, the head of the club's New South Wales mm-hmm. he made a quote about the Premier and and then he was hung out to dry by the media because he used the reference of Premier's Catholic gut. And, you know, what happened after that was just a, a manhunt basically uh, for his head. So it's it's quite sad that unfortunately there is just this appetite for seeing people bullied, for lack of a better word, by the media. Hey, maybe be... we can train AI to pick up bullying at, at some stage, <laughs> or, although with the success rate of uh, Microsoft's being AI, um, I'm not sure we're, we're quite there at the moment, but uh, maybe soon. Well, I was going to say it would also be fascinating to be a, a fly on the wall in some of those uh, internal discussions that I suspect have, have come about after this one. Damo, I was also going to ask you, you've mentioned that um, Matt Knapp anecdote a couple of times. Was it you that discovered that ad on, on Pornhub yourself? <laughs> You have to do the research, mate. You have to do the research. I mean, you know, I'm thorough, if nothing else. All professional. All professional. What are you implying, Cal? What are you implying exactly? Uh, Moving on. (laughs) All right, on to our final news topic of the day. After a few months of leadership changes at Havas Group, we finally have a sense of how things are shaping up with Dentu Creative's Chief Client Officer, Gail Weil, coming in to replace Laura Aldington as host of our CEO. James Wright's rumoured return to Australia as the new CEO of Havis Creative Village, as we discussed in the podcast a few weeks ago, has also been confirmed with Wright set to continue as global CEO of Red Havas and global chairman of Havas PR Global Collective. He's also taking responsibility of Havas's Australian agencies, including host of us, have us commerce, Red Havas, have us Boulevard, One Green Bean Organic, sort of taking uh, some of those agencies that Simone Gupta had under her remit under his own. Seems like no one picked Weil as being the successful party in this one. She didn't come up in our discussion a few weeks ago. It's her second CEO gig after a short stint as boss of Clemenger Melbourne in 2019 and 2020. She's very highly rated in the market. Demo, does this seem like a smart move from Havas? Yeah, it's a smart move from Havas, but geez, these um, senior leadership movements, it's like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The damn thing just never ends. So here we go again. Uh, Nice to have uh, someone in place rather than uh, another question mark Uh, and probably quicker than we expected. Of course, we don't know where Laura Aldington is going yet. And knowing my luck, we'll figure it out before this podcast gets published. But uh, hey-ho, there you go. Um, I think it's a smart move by Havas indeed. Gail has very deep experience in agency land that spanned a number of different agencies, including AKQA, Digitas, CX Lavender, uh, the aforementioned Clems and Dentsu, uh, of course, uh, particularly a strong client background, having held uh, client services director roles at uh, CMW in London, uh, as well as Lavender and and Dentsu, uh, of course, most recently. But not as much time uh, leading agencies uh, as you uh, alluded to, Cal. Um, I felt like it was a a bit of the big what if with um, Gail as the CEO of Clemenger Melbourne. Of course, she replaced uh, Nick Garrett, who was running both the Melbourne and Sydney uh, offices, uh, when he left uh, Clemenger, but we didn't really 
uh, see what she could do because she was uh, she was there for less than a year, essentially. Obviously, very big shoes to fill uh, as well, but a lot of people were quite excited to see uh, what was going to happen there. She left that role to go back to London, also just as Cleminger Melbourne in particular had picked up the the Agency of the Decade uh, Award uh, with Mumbrella. So this is probably a, a really good chance for the industry to see what a Gail Wilde-led agency uh, can achieve. And there's no reason to think that it won't be a, an exciting ride. We had for that short stint at Cleminger Melbourne, her and her partner, Stephen DeWolf, was chief creative officer of that agency. And, you know, a, a sort of interesting partnership like that at the very summit of a, an agency with the, the scale and reputation that Cleminger had at that at that point of time would have been fascinating to see in, in the works. Obviously, they both returned a year later from London and Wolfie, as he's known, is now Chief Creative Officer at DDB Group. Spoke to Virginia Highland very briefly, the remaining CEO from that, that group in the Havis Village last year. She said that she and the group are very excited to welcome Gail and that the new energy she's bringing. She also mentioned, you know, that that cross experience that you mentioned there, Damo. She also had roles within Dentsu within her short time there on the media side and the creative side of the business. So yeah, I think a lot of anticipation for that one. But then on on the other hand, we've also got James Wright's full time return. He's going to be running the show locally, Damo. What do you make of that? Yeah, look, do not under any circumstances underestimate the importance uh, for the local uh, Havas agencies of having James Wright back in the building. Super well-known, super high achiever as well, obviously with a good uh, knowledge of the Australian industry, having operated within it for a substantial amount of time before shuffling off to New York. I say shuffling, it's uh, not entirely the best way to describe a, a a very senior promotion that saw him land in New York for a, a global uh, role. He's going to be doing that same role uh, just from Sydney now, um, as well as taking on the, the Habas Village uh, agencies. But I think especially for someone like Gail coming into the group, having someone like James being as accessible in the same time zone, you know, the same building, uh, will make a, a world of difference. So good to have him back in the industry. Quick plug for ComsCon. He's keynoting. So if you want to hear him speak, please come. Coming up after the break, HTE's Kieran Davis talks earnings and potential consolidation. Next up, we are welcoming Kieran Davis, CEO and Managing Director of HTE, to the podcast. Nice to speak to you, Kieran, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Colin. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So HTD delivered its financial year 2022 results this morning, being Tuesday, the 21st of February. Revenue up 53%, EBITDA up 53%. How healthy do you see the company as being after these results, Kieran? Uh, I think it was a very strong result uh, in light of a lot of activity and, and transformational work that was going on in the business last year. Uh, obviously, we completed the acquisition of 46 stations from Grant Broadcasters in January of last year, and we sent, spent a sizable part of the year integrating that business uh, into our overall audio offering. It's gone really well. The, the integration has gone ahead of expectations. We delivered the, the national revenue synergy for the year that we thought we would. Regional revenues were up 7%, which was ahead of market. 
Uh, we restructured the, the management structure within the regional division, which has gone really well. And I think the pleasing thing is that just, just to listen to the, the passion, the pride uh, and the energy that everybody at ARN Regional and indeed in Metro Division has for their station, their community, it really just shows the the uniqueness of, of where we're positioned within Australian media at the moment. And that level of localism community is is very, very important to deliver a, a critical service to, to the community, particularly in sort of more of the emergency situations like we saw at the floods in Queensland or even South Australia last weekend with the bushfires. But more importantly, you know, from an advertiser perspective, you know, an engaged audience that's continuing to grow and um, that's delivering really good solutions for, for, for our clients, which I think places radio in a very, very strong position going forward. So I take it the company believes that acquisition went very well. One interesting figure which, which sort of stood out in those results was the impairment figure of $249.9 million, which the company said reflects an increase in the ARN CGU discount rate and the estimated impacts of the current macroeconomic environment on future advertising revenues. Can you, can you talk us through, I guess, with a little bit more context, just, just what that means? Yeah, and obviously all media companies have have suffered the last six mm-hmm. or twelve months in terms of you know the the global uh, atmosphere that exists at the moment and the uncertainty that's there between interest rate inflation, um, you know more de- destabilizing activities around the world, and and share prices in media companies have taken a hit because obviously the the investor market believes that you know advertising will will be one of the first things to go when when a downturn comes if indeed it does come. You know, so therefore, you know, from that perspective, our share price has been affected and the, the 250 million, it, it's an impairment attributable to the intangible assets of our full ARN business. So it's not reflective of, of metro or regional. It's the full ARN business. It's largely driven by the fact that, that our share price is off circa 40, 45 percent in the last 12 months, as indeed most businesses are. But in terms of the outlook we have for the business, it'll be guided by the economic situation, um, as we saw in our trading update. You know, the, the recession hasn't come yet. Advertisers are still spending. We've given what we believe is a fairly solid um, quarterly update for pacing for the first quarter in 2023. There are some categories that are growing their spend. There, there are some categories that are large spenders that haven't spent yet, but we understand that they will. We, we're very good at managing our cost base. We continue to maintain the, the EBITDA margin that we have in radio at 33%, which is very easy to blow out when you integrate a business yeah. and, and costs can grow. And we're taking a, a cautious approach to the emerging world of digital audio, where we do see the path to profitability shortening. We do see incremental audiences coming. We do see incremental revenue coming. So I think in terms of the intangible, it's it's reflective of, of the broader macroeconomic environment that we're in, as opposed to any changing fundamentals that we see within our, our core business or our emerging business. Yeah, you kind of mentioned it at the end there. We see with some of the competitors, including Southern Cross Stereo, obviously making listener a much more visible uh, focus of of the business alongside the traditional radio business where do you sort of see that split in focus within the company at the moment for you guys well we don't split it out um you know we see it as part of our overall all audio offering so you know we 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 have a mission to create you know the, the most comprehensive audio for our listeners and the most comprehensive audio solutions for our advertisers. That, that can be in the format of radio, and, and we're very pleased with where we sit in terms of our radio portfolio and the ratings that we're achieving, the brands that we're achieving. It, it could be in the area of podcasting. And again, you know, we're the leading podcast publisher. We've seen podcast downloads increase by 40% on the year. We're starting to grow revenue as well. We've got a really, really good 
back engine programmatic piece that we've, we've built over the last 12 to 18 months. Streaming is something that, that's becoming interesting potentially. Um, but our sales teams go to market selling all audio solutions. We, we, you know, we, we train them. We, we provide solutions that are based on metro, regional and, and digital um, listeners and solutions. And therefore, we tend not to split out what really is a digital vision versus a radio vision. We see it all as one. I think we're, we're lucky, um, not lucky, we're, we're, we're fortunate to have a very strong global tech partner in iHeartMedia. The history of that is that they used to own 50% of this business and, and we've kept an incredible relationship going with them over the years, which means that we are a low capital intensive model of, of investment in digital audio. We focus our, our spend and our, our allocation of capital in the area of content creation and sales operations. And, and that, yeah, together with the audience growth that we're having and the, the interest that advertisers are having in digital audio, uh, as well as radio, is, is probably leading us to believe that we can be profitable sooner than we would have expected. But, but overall, I, I think I'm still very encouraged by the role that radio continues to play in the marketing mix. It's very well understood. It's, it's held a 7 8% of total advertising historically for the last 15, 20 years. Uh, I think in tougher, challenging times when marketing budgets and decisions are becoming shorter in their time frame, the role radio plays in terms of its immediacy, its, its, its level of creativity, particularly that some of the stuff that we can do now, um, the ROI that you get, the cost efficiency of you get, and its role within the marketing mix is, is very well regarded. And from that perspective, I, I probably do disagree maybe with some of the people in the investor market who think that that radio is a traditional media that that's challenged. It's not. Audiences are growing. Revenue is very stable. And we're seeing incremental audiences and incremental revenue coming through from digital audio. So I guess one obvious point to ask you about, Kieran, is the, the rumored merger with Seven West Media. First, it'd be good to get a view from you on, on where things stand. Are you, is the company open to a deal? Uh, have there been any conversations at this point? This is, this is a rumor that's been there for a while, Callum, as you know. Uh, there have been no conversations. Um, I, I think we're all on the record in terms of the, the theoretical improvements and, and efficiencies to be had with consolidation, both from a content perspective and, and a revenue generation perspective. That hasn't changed. Um, but I think what we have been doing is focusing on our business, focusing on creating shareholder value. You know, post the sale of Soprano, we will have minimal net debt. Uh, we've improved the dividend policy for shareholders. And we remain open and proactive with any initiative that, that would see us create shareholder value in the future. And if that involves conversations around consolidation, we'll absolutely have them in the interest of shareholders. But we can't dictate a lot of what rumors is said and what's out there. What we can dictate <laughs> is the performance of our business and, and yeah. that's what we're focused on. So, so I guess theoretically, what would a potential ideal partner look like to you? Uh, I, I don't have a theoretical ideal partner, to be honest. Um, I think we would... Uh, analyze any approach that's made for the business and, and again there hasn't been but we would analyze any approach for the business on the merits of 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 and the lens through what shareholders and what shareholders would would feel as a value accretive piece for them so just finally kieran i, I get the impression you know despite some of these headwinds that we have discussed you're feeling pretty positive about the outlook of the year what what's the sort of uh, the overall take for you heading into the rest of the year uh, I'm I'm incredibly upbeat by by radio, to be honest. And and you know, I, I look around our organisation and our network. Uh, we've got fifteen hundred people who are incredibly passionate at what they do. Um, they they the pride and energy and and general 
sort of enthusiasm with which everybody goes about their work, about whether it's content creation or whether it's digital integration or whether it's sales or whether it's on-street promotions, whatever role people are playing, you know, it's an incredibly energetic place to be. And the, the role that our staff have is, should never be underestimated in terms of the contribution they make to this business because it's their content that they produce, it's their radio stations that they sell, it's their uh, integration that they do or their commercial operations that they do or whatever role they have. That actually makes it very energetic and, and that, so long as we remain as enthusiastic as we are, will be very good for the medium and I'm incredibly proud of the people that we have. Kieran Davis, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Callum. Lastly, after the break, the MFA's Sophie Madden on approaching a tough market in 2023 over promotions and the opportunity from the tech sector. Sophie Madden, CEO of the Media Federation of Australia. Welcome to the podcast and I believe also congratulations on 10 years in your role. Thanks, Callum. Thanks for inviting me. Great to be here. And um, yeah, 10 years. Can you believe that? Sort of doesn't feel like 10 years, though, because I think those COVID years all merged into one and not sure if they really count. Well, it's a great time to get you on. You know, you kind of have this uh, contrast to first episode of this year. We had Josh Folks, your um, counterpart at the AANA, who's just taken up his role. I guess we head into 2023. The biggest topic, I think, probably on most people's minds at the moment are the economic headwinds, currently using the headlines of the RBA being urged to avoid another rate rise. Uh, also, in this episode, we had Kieran Davis from HT&E, um, also throwing caution to the wind about the ad market going forward. From your perspective at the MFA, how are you really looking at 2023? What's sort of the feeling in, in terms of confidence? Well, we're, we're very confident. We've faced industry sort of softening before. It's, it's a strong sector. Uh, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of concern about confidence in consumer spending and, and making sure that marketing budgets are invested in uh, and continue to grow. Uh, but certainly the outlook at the moment is softening, but, but a steady, strong year. We, we saw some figures in the, the MFA census, which was released fairly recently, which were a pretty positive outlook um, as we sort of continue to emerge from this pandemic. We had vacancy roles cut, um, overall staffing was, I guess, on the up. The vacancy rate, I believe, was down just above the desired 6% with churn at 33%. 33% churn, is that, I guess, a figure that's still higher than than you would like it to be at? Yes, in short, yes. Um, certainly, look when you look at the census, I think the census has got some really fascinating data in it. It, it shows a story of ongoing sort of population growth at, at, at agencies, quite significant growth over the last um, few years. We had the year before last 19% growth and then last year 6% growth. When you look at the number of people we've actually employed into the industry, it really is is quite remarkable because then you overlay that with with the talent gap, which... Um, was reduced from the year before, which sat at about 12.5%, but is still running quite high at 8.5%. I'm not sure we'd say six is our desired, because I'm sure if you're sitting at, at your desk in an agency, you don't really want any vacant seat. But certainly 6% yeah. is a more sort of steady number that we're used to seeing. So that, that would be sort of where we'd like to head back to. In terms of the churn, that would be the one number that I would say, in fact, there's a couple of numbers that I would say are probably things that we would say are areas of concern or focus. One is churn, uh, getting that number back down. Uh, we did see, you know, off the back of COVID, 
a churn sort of decline, as you'd expect during the COVID years, people were less likely to, to change roles. And as a result of that, there was a bit of a rebound of churn. And we did have a small decline last year, but that is certainly a number that we would like to see change and is something that we're quite focused on bringing down. We launched our We Are The Changes, Our Industry Purpose last year. The focus of that whole program is about reinstilling pride in the industry and, and reconnecting people with the value of what we do as an industry um, and, and with the ultimate goal to reduce churn in the market. The other another number in the census that, that probably is worth noting is the the reduced sort of tenure, which is a big indicator of people being promoted possibly too early. And um, and that's another area that we are focusing on moving more. Yeah, it's um interesting. I believe I was looking at some figures from the Bureau of Statistics and, and churn across most industries, I think, has been up a lot recently. We, we see a lot of cuts coming from the tech sector at the moment. I know there has been comments made in market about the opportunity this may uh, provide for industries such as the media agency industry. Do, do you see an opportunity here from agency bosses? And I guess on that, will there sort of been some readjusting in terms of maybe the inflated wages that some of these people might be coming back into the industry on? You know, it's always challenging and to be honest, a little bit distressing when there's restructuring and redundancies and people losing their roles. You know, these are our work colleagues and people that we deal with and, and friends to many of us. So that's always distressing. But the, the reality is we do have vacant roles at agency and we're always looking to hire great talent and we know how talented some of the, most of those people are. So I'm sure that there are a lot of discussions going on in market at the moment about whether there's opportunities for them within media agencies and how we can move people across. As to their salaries, I, I don't know. <laughs> It's it's funny. There was there was another um, article in Trade Press the other day. It sort of positioned it as pitting two agency bosses against each other in somewhat of a talent war with poaching of staff, which has always been, um, I guess, a byproduct of a, a tight talent market. You know, churn as the figures here suggest. Do you think that will kind of always be an issue? Competition for staff needs to be seen as a, a byproduct until vacancy rates are down and you have staffing across that. Um, and I guess. How, how do you fix, you, you know, you, you mentioned there uh, an over-promotion maybe early in someone's career? Gosh, there's lots of layers to that question, Callum. Um, <laughs> I, I think in terms of competitiveness for staff, when you're working in a small talent market and a competitive talent market, you're always going to have that pressure when you need to fill a role, particularly an experienced role, where are you going to get that talent from? And, and obviously, the more talent out in the market to employ, the reduced pressure that, that then becomes. We um, recently launched a program we call Career Changes, uh, which was actually about trying to bring in talent that has experience in other industries, so really strong transferable skills, and then upskill them in an accelerated way with the functional skills of the industry. Um, the, the purpose of that program was to address the fact that where our gaps are is in the more experienced area, not in the new talent and the new grad area. So to help with that tenure enrol, to help bring back um, some of these sort of softer, strong, transferable skills um, and management skills into that sort of, I guess, three years experience onwards roles. Um, it's only been, I think, less than a week, but we had the uh, update f- last week from the government on the Privacy Act. Any initial thoughts from the MFA on this, how it's potentially going to impact the industry, what kind of resetting this is going to bring about, or is it uh, a little early to say? 
have to be honest, it's a little bit early to say. <laughs> We're still digesting the full report. It's, um, you know, and all the proposals and, and changes that it entails. It's, an, it's incredibly comprehensive. Uh, obviously, it's, it will have broad-reaching impacts on the sector, not just for agencies but for publishers and for advertisers. Um, but it's a little bit too early for me to dive into the detail of what, what that actually means at this point. Just finally, we did mention at the top there that it's been 10 years now. Is there maybe a moment or an achievement you see as something you're most proud of to date, maybe getting the the industry through COVID? Uh, Is is there anything that stands out for you? You know, 10 years is quite a long time. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things that I'm incredibly proud of that um, the MFA, you know, that we've collectively done with the MFA board and all our members over the last 10 years. I would say things like the um, transparency framework that we developed a number of years ago, mm-hmm. that was a real moment in time of resetting our industry around where, what we stood for uh, and how we wanted to operate um, with our partners and with our clients. So that's something I'm particularly proud of because at the time that was quite a challenging project to do. I'm proud of the work that Tony Hale and I did um, from the Ad Council on the visa program because again that was something that was had never been done before from from our industry's perspective and and um, we, we worked together really closely on that project I'm, I'm really proud of that um, so there's quite a number of things that you know the adapts the the, the adapts work that we did with the IAB and the AANA which is a really astounding piece of, of work around digital practices and you know and it's had a lot of global sort of um, commentary on, on how strong a piece of work that is so um, yeah lots lots of work that I'm that I'm really proud of that we've done. Fantastic well Sophie it's been great to have you join us today thanks for your time and I'll see you soon. Great thanks Callum. That is all we have time for today. Thanks for listening to the Mumbrella Cast. Please make sure to subscribe if you like what you're hearing and head to mumbrella.com.au to keep on top of the media and marketing industry in Australia. Thanks again to Kieran and Sophie for joining us and Liv and Damo, thank you very much once again. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Carlton. See you next week.